Here we are, Genesis chapter 4. This morning we are going to continue on with this sermon series in Genesis. Does this go up? It's fine. We're good. We're good. Um, We do expository preaching here. Grady does expository preaching, which means Maricopa Springs teaches through the Bible, verse by verse, line by line, context, which is great. So you guys can follow along. We can see what God's word is teaching us. And this morning, we're just picking up where we left off last week, and that's why I wanted Grady to read Genesis 3 for us, to get our minds refreshed on what has taken place so far. Now, before I read our passage this morning, let me just remind us what has happened in the first three chapters of Genesis. God made everything. It says in Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God, he created. And what does it say? He created everything good. God made every bird, every animal, all life forms, all plants, all trees, all mountains, all beaches, all sands, all stars, outer space, everything that we see and experience, God made it, and he made it good. But he made something specific, something unique, something that we can all look at each other and see reflected, and that is he made human beings, the human race. He made us male and female, the Bible says, And he made us in his specific image. So we see God making Adam. He then made Eve. And he told Adam and Eve that they could dwell within this beautiful garden that he created with all this vegetation and fruit life and seed-bearing plants and vegetables and animals and water sources. It was everything Hollywood ever tries to portray as paradise. But he told them, he said, look, there's one tree you cannot eat of it. And if you eat of it, what? You're going to die. And we know the story. You guys have heard it last week. Adam and Eve, they sin against God. They rebel against him. They eat of that tree, and then something happens. Something horrible happens. Sin affects the entire human race, the entire creation. It permeates in. It starts to destroy. And God, he then curses the serpent, Satan, who deceives the woman. He curses Adam And he curses Eve, and we just read those. But he leaves a promise tucked away and hidden within his cursing of the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, God says that one day there will will come a seed, an offspring from Eve, who is going to crush the seed or the offspring of the serpent. And this is a veiled promise. This is what theologians call the pre-gospel in the scriptures. We see the first glimpse of God's eternal plan of redemption unfolding. He leaves Adam and Eve with something to look forward to, something to salvage what we, the human race, have destroyed. And so that's what leads us to our text this morning. And this morning, if I was to paint a banner or a singular message or focus of what God wants us to really hone in and see this morning in Cain and Abel, it's that sin is continuing to wreak havoc upon the human existence. And that is not something fun to look at, nor is it something that leaves us in a state of feeling good. So let's read the text this morning, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And it says this, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, Cain. And she said, I have 
begotten this son, or I've received this son from the help of the Lord. And again, she bore another son and named him Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were out in the fields, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother. He said, I do not know where Abel my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let me pray for us as we dive in here. Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes, the people of God, those here who have trusted in Christ, who are born again by your spirit, that we all together would get a glimpse of the depths and the riches of your word. To see Christ, to see the gospel tucked away, hidden in this text to see the severity of sin, the grotesqueness of our rebellion towards you, and our great need for rescue, which only Jesus provides. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to do my best this morning. I feel like this morning's sermon's kind of like taking an airplane flight. I know where we're going. I just don't know how much turbulence is going to be on this flight. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of information in these verses and I've tried my best to trim it down to give you the best portion. But we might find a little bit of rockiness along the way. So in the beginning, we see here one thing that I want to highlight. It says, now Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and she bore a son. I'm not going to get into the details of what that means. But to know his wife means that they had sexual relations. They conceived. That's how it happens. And Cain is born. But what I want to highlight for us is that we see the mercy of God already unpacking itself in this text. God could have destroyed and wiped out Adam and Eve, and he should have. They should have been taken out, but God was merciful to preserve them. And here we see God starting to fulfill Genesis 3.15. And you would assume that Eve, who reminded or, or who heard and received that one day she would have a, a child that would come and destroy the serpent, she had to recognize and think that Cain was that 
fulfillment. So God, right off the bat here, shows mercy. He shows that he has something going on, something bigger than man's rebellion behind the scenes. God's providence is on display towards the human existence to provide for us. And we're going to see that in a few minutes. The big picture of God's plan beginning to unfold itself. But sadly here, in these opening verses, even though Eve is given a son by the Lord, Cain, and another son, Abel, we're going to see that God's merciful providence doesn't put an end to the problem of sin. It does not put an end to the problem of sin. Notice here that all life comes from the Lord. Eve says and recognizes, I have begotten a son. How? Because God has given him to me. God is continuing to show himself as creator, provider, giver. All life comes from God. Everything comes from him. And it says here that she's given Cain and she's given Abel. And then there's a note here that God puts in the text, and he tells us their occupations. Cain is a worker of the ground. The ground that before Genesis 3 happened produced robust fruit easily, vegetables and life forms from plant sources that grew themselves, ripened themselves, were easy to pluck, easy to harvest, easy to enjoy. But now Cain's a worker of the ground that has been cursed by God. And it says here that Abel, Abel is a worker of the flocks. If you remember, God created all the animal life forms. He told Adam to name those animals. And here we see that Abel, we don't know what kind of animals, but some type of herding animal, he's now, his occupation is to tend to them. And it says here that, um, Sorry, and it says here that, that that's what they're doing, okay? So observations I want to make. Just a couple quick ones about work. First of all, God intends us to work, okay? When we read the scriptures, what I love is there's a narrative taking place here that we can see a bigger picture of what the text is saying, but there's some, some nuggets and details that we can draw from God's word and, and apply to our life. And one of them is that God obviously intended that we would work, Adam and Eve work. They work the garden. It's a good thing that comes from God. And here Cain and Abel continue on with that. I love what uh, Matthew Henry says about this part of the text in his commentary. He says, it is the will of God that we should, every one of us, have something to do in this world. And Cain and Abel each have something to do. They're filled with the task. What we don't see here is the time gap that's taken place. Right? Adam or Adam and Eve, they come together. Eve has these two sons, and now they're workers. My kids are sitting right here, eight, eight, basically six and four. They're a long ways away from probably doing full-time work. Right? But in the text here, it's just boom. Right? Moses is getting to the point. They're born, they're living, they're working under the curse. And now we start to move into really the heart of the matter of this portion of Scripture. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, in the course of time. So after time has passed, Cain brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brings of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Don't take the fat out of the meat, folks. No, I'm just kidding. Okay? They bring an offering to God. 
What's a little strange is we have no idea why they do this. The text so far has mentioned no such thing as an offering or a sacrifice. Here is the first time in scripture, in the narrative, we see that they do something like this. And it's probably noted that the reason they do this is to perform an act of worship towards God. We see if we look at the rest of scripture, places like Job, Job is offering sacrifices to God. He's a righteous man. We're going to see in a few months, weeks, whatever it takes for Grady to get to Genesis 6, Noah, Noah performing sacrifices to God. We see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So we see this taking place, but here, here we see it happen for the first time. And there's two offerings that are presented here, one from Cain, one from Abel, one from the ground, one from the livestock, their occupation. I wrote here, an offering was an act which acknowledged God as creator, provider, ruler, and savior. Right? We can see these things. Those who acknowledge God for who he is, we see God to be that in the first couple chapters of Genesis. And without knowing all the details here about Cain and Abel and why they both bring offerings to God, we can see here that they give back to God, which God already gave to them. And that's what true offering, a true offering is. That's what true worship is. It's recognizing that everything we have comes from God. And so how could we not open our hands and just offer back to God what already is his and he's given to us? But they both give offerings here. But notice what the text says. It says that God did not have regard for Cain's offering, but he did have regard for Abel's offering. And again, we actually don't know why that is. The text itself does not tell us why. But I think we can draw some inferences as to why this is the case. It does tell us it's because Cain does not do well but Abel does do well. And I have three inferences, three things that I think we could pull away from Scripture as we read it and study it as to why Cain's offering was not regarded as acceptable by God. Why is it that Cain's offering was not received by God? And the first thing I think we could draw from Scripture is that Cain probably lacked wrong motivation. He lacked wrong motivation. Motivation. I've heard one guy say once that we do the things we want to do because we want to do them. Right? Motivation drives us towards action. But oftentimes, motivation is wrong. And it steers us to doing things the wrong way. Right? Cain here only makes an offering. This is my assumption here. But I think scripture would pull this out and, and, and lead us to believe this because he was doing it on the surface only. Cain brings to God an offering probably because that's what they were doing. Somewhere that we can't see, God tells them to do this. They're doing this type of thing probably somewhat regularly. Cain just brings his offering, but he's not motivated to actually do it because he loves God, because he wants to please God, because it's an act of worship and obedience to God. He's just doing it to show face. His motivations are not right. Listen to Psalm 50, 8 through 16. The psalmist writes this. He says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. This is God speaking. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, 
For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the word, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? Right? This is fast-forwarding a long time after Cain and Abel, but what, what is God doing? He's confronting the people of Israel who are bringing to God stuff that he's given, and he says, look, I own all of it. Anything you bring me, I, I own it. It's mine. I gave it to you. And I don't want you to bring it when your heart is wicked and your motivations are wrong. Hosea says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And Isaiah says this, God says, bring no more vain offerings to me. Incense is an abomination to me. Why would God say that, right? Doesn't he want us to bring offerings and give them back to him? And the answer is yes, but what he's addressing here is the wickedness of the human heart that puts on a front, that the motivations aren't right, right? It's the general politics of today. It's whatever politician, either side of the table, standing up and saying one thing, but just totally lying. And their heart motivation is corrupted. That's what I think God, perhaps, that's why he's not receiving Cain's sacrifice. God wants people to offer him true worship. That's John chapter 3. To come to him with right motivation, to give back to him from a heart that loves him. Look, many people, maybe even here today, many people act religious. They attend churches every week. They get spiritual tattoos. They verbally associate themselves with Christianity. Yet many people, many, are walking just like Cain in the motivation most likely of their hearts. They have no regard for God, and God has no acceptance of such hypocrisy. He will not receive it. He will not regard it as an offering to him. Another thing I think that Scripture would lead us to unpack or draw from is that Cain lacked veneration towards God. Veneration. He had no respect and reverence and awe for who God is. His offering was not given out of a proper recognition that God is worthy and deserving of all that we are and all that we have. Right? For Cain, God, yeah, he's God, whatever. I'm doing my thing over here. I got my, my life I'm living how I want to live. He does not venerate God. Cain gives a flipping offering. It's kind of just like walking by and tossing a quarter in the, in the fountain and just pressing on. He's not even thinking about his act or his offering to God. Perhaps he's just going through the motions, doing what he's supposed to do because that's what they do. Instead of actually thinking about who it is that he's offering his worship to. Cain is not approaching God with a heart of awe, right? When we think of that word, to be in awe of something, to stand at the, at the Grand Canyon and to sit there and marvel and be in awe and have a, 
a veneration for the power and the, and the majesty of the Grand Canyon. How much more for God who created all things. Cain lacks humility and proper fear before God. And I, and I think we can assume that based off of all of Scripture because that's the condition of the unbelieving heart. The heart that in Genesis 3 was corrupted, that was made dark, that no longer wanted God but wanted their own way, didn't want what was good but wanted what they thought to be good, right? And this ultimately comes down to lack of spiritual life, I think. I think ultimately the reason that Cain's offering is not regarded by God ultimately is because he lacks regeneration. Cain needs to be transformed. Cain needs newness of life. Cain's heart is the same condition that his dad's heart was when he rebelled against God. He was born in Adam. He was born a rebel of God, and his heart has not been changed. Listen to what Matthew Henry writes. By the way, if you ever hear me preach and you come here, I love Matthew Henry. I quote him all the time. If you don't have Matthew Henry's full Bible commentary, like the full thing, not the condensed version, the big one. Get it. It's worth the money and read it because you will be blessed by the insights that God gave this man. But listen to what he says. He says, there was a difference in the characters of the persons offering to God. Cain was a wicked man, he says. He led a bad life under the reigning power of the world and the flesh, and therefore his sacrifice was an abomination to the Lord. God has no respect to Cain himself, therefore he has no respect for his offering as the manner of the expression imitates. What does God say? He has no regard. That statement means he does not accept Cain. He does not accept Cain. We don't know all the details, but we know this. God was not happy with Cain or his offering. He was not pleased by it, but he was for Abel. He was for Abel. We're going to get to that in a few minutes more about Abel. But let's continue on here, okay? Look at verse... Okay, verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, it says he has no regard. So Cain, it says, was very angry and his face fell. Cain's response to God calling him out for his own rebellion is anger back towards God and his face falls. I love that translation, right? I have little kids. Boys, I love you, right? But when you sin towards dad, and I expose that because I love you, oftentimes what do you do, guys? You get angry and their face, it falls, right? It's, it's a combination of, of hostility and anger and spite and sadness because they're losing something, not because they love me, but because they've been caught, because sin has been exposed. And this is what happens to Cain. Sin, almost always, when it is exposed, especially if the heart is not new, results with hostility, anger back towards whoever exposes it. Right? We see this in the scriptures. This is the natural response of sin. Look at the Pharisees with Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus confronts them time and time again. 
exposes them of their sinfulness. And what is the normal, ongoing response of the Jewish leaders towards Jesus? Were they thanking him, tipping the hat, giving him something and saying, appreciate it? No, they were raging with anger. They sought ways to kill him, which is what Cain does here in just a minute to his brother. The book of Proverbs, I love the book of Proverbs. I love the whole Bible, but I've read Proverbs quite a bit and some most recently. And we see this, right? The fool, the fool who doesn't love God gives full veneration to his anger. He gives fully over to his angry heart, his heart that hates God and loves sin. And Jesus says this in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. He says, look, Nick, it's not that the world, right, needs to be confronted. They're already condemned. They're already exposed. Light has already come. But man hates the light because their deeds are wicked. When you flip the light on and you see bugs, they run away, right? We've all heard that analogy. This is what sin seeks to do. It hates being confronted, and all it wants to do is retaliate and destroy. And that is the problem that we as humans are dealing with. So Cain responds to God in the way that sinners respond, apart from Christ, by getting angry. And I just want to ask and pause and say this to you guys here this morning. How do you respond when you're confronted by God? It might be through a spouse. That's a big one right? God pointing out crevices of your heart, sin that you need to have addressed. Do you respond with anger? Do you bite back right away at your spouse or anybody in the body of Christ or however means God might be sanctifying you, right? Point to myself as well. Or are we soft-hearted? Are we receiving God's loving hand of rebuke to make us more like Christ? Some of you here this morning might need to really look at that. And you might need to look at that because we might need to see if, in fact, you need transformation to occur in your heart. We don't have time to talk about all of this and all the softness of the heart and repentance and what that truly looks like, but we will look at that a little bit more towards the end. So Cain becomes angry, his face falls, he responds to God in that way, and then what does God say back to Cain? It says here in verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Man, what does God do here? He puts Cain in his place. Folks, God is not some willy-nilly, hippie, daisy-picking, you know, jumping around God. He means business. And here, God confronts Cain by telling him, you have absolutely no right to get angry towards me. You're the one that's at fault. You disobeyed. Don't get mad at me. It's your fault. Right? He addresses him right at the heart. And what does he say? He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, John here pretty much preached half my sermon with his prayer moment, so Hopefully, you guys are ready to, uh, to receive that again. Simply put, what God is not saying here is, Cain, if you work enough and do enough good and earn enough standing before me, then finally I will accept you. That is not what God is saying here. He's getting to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is this. If the seed is good and planted in the ground and it's good, what will it do? It's going to bear fruit. It's going to grow. It's going to sprout. It's going to be good. Right? God's saying, look, 
if you do good, it's going to go well for you. It's pretty simple. That's all throughout Scripture, the book of Proverbs, everywhere, right? If we do good, things go well. If you don't do good, things don't go well. We recently went to Montana. We do this every year. And on the way back, we're cruising, and I got pulled over. I was speeding. I was doing it safely. I was not reckless. But the cop said, hey, how fast are you going? Ah, maybe 10 miles over. At the end of the day, what happened? I got a ticket because I, I wasn't doing well. If I wasn't speeding, I would have never got pulled over and never got a ticket. It's that simple, right? But let's unpack it a little bit more because I think some people are going to get caught up in this statement here. What does God mean by doing well? Well, let's start by what he does not mean. God does not mean that he is inferring a works-based relationship with him. It's not what he's saying. It's not that Abel's performing all these good deeds, therefore he's accepted. God has graced Abel. We don't get a lot of details, but God has graced Abel, right? He's lavished him with grace. He's caused him to respond. Rather, what God is getting at here is a right response relationship with him. Not a workspace, but a right response, right? A right response. Those who love God, what does the Bible say? If you love God, you will what? Obey his commands. Is that works, righteousness? It can be if you get it wrong, but it's not according to Scripture. If we obey God, or if we love God, we will obey him. And when we obey him, our life has peace and fruitfulness and goodness. This is John chapter 15. Jesus says, if you remain in me, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you're going to bear much fruit. Right? If we were to be introspective and look at our life and examine and go, man, do I have a peace in my home? Do I, am I a witness at work? Do I have good fruit going on in my relationships? And if you start to be like, oh, no, that one's not good. That one. Normally, most often, that's referred back to you, right, with sin in your life. You're not doing things well according to what God has designed us to do. If we do right, things go good. When we don't, our lives experience brokenness. This is called sin, folks, right? We don't, we're not too far removed. Genesis 2, Genesis 3, what does God say? If you eat this tree, you're going to die. Don't do it. If you don't eat this tree, you're going to enjoy all this goodness. This is what I design. Sex, good food, rest, beauty, it's all there. God designed it. He created it. But as soon as we sin, we break that. And it affects every aspect of our life. This is the whole book of Proverbs, right? Either you accept the book of Proverbs as God's grace, showing us what a new heart looks like, or we throw it away because it's works righteousness. And it's not. It's not. This is a, uh, uh, I can't think of the terminology, so forget it. This is basically, right, if you do this, this will happen. Cause and effect. There we go. Sorry, I couldn't think of it. Cause and effect. So Romans 3.20 says this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. Attempting to do well as the grounds of earning God's favor will always produce failure in your life. Okay? It always will. If your motivation for doing good is trying to earn favor with God, you're always going to fall short because God's law is perfect and it exposes our sin. It's only freedom from sin that gives us the ability to do good before God. 
And this only comes, we're going to see this soon, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Genesis 3, 15. Doing well is an overflow of the heart, simply put. If the heart loves God, then you will do well in your life. Not perfectly. If you remember, I preached on 1 John, I don't know, was that a year ago maybe? Not perfect obedience, but practiced obedience, right? A, a life that projectively moves towards the things of God because we love God. If we have the right motivation, producing proper veneration, because we've experienced regeneration, then we will live a life that ultimately is pleasing to God and we will be doing well before him. It's that simple. Galatians 6.10 says this, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, that they will also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's not works. This is just common sense, right? The newness of life. Romans 2 highlights this, I think, perfectly. Romans 2 says, He will render, this is God, each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. What is God saying here in Romans? He's not saying, if you do these things, you'll earn it. This is just what people who have been born again, who have received the gospel, believed upon Jesus, this is what your life looks like. It's like God is looking at one sense and going, oh, I see all your fruit, come on in. But when you get in, he goes, man, you're here not because of your fruit, because I, I made you new. I did that. It gets back to the offering that Cain and Abel bring. Who brings an offering to God and says, look what I've brought you, God, because I gave all this to you? No. They humble themselves, get on their face and go, this comes from you and I give it back. That's what good fruit looks like in our life. But then it says, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, that's a key word, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be wrath and fury. The scriptures are loaded with this. Those who don't believe the truth, who persist in rebellion towards God, who don't receive Jesus as he is, the free gift of eternal life, the only one who can reconcile us to God, those who reject that, what do they do by nature? They continue on in rebellion, which leads to ultimate wrath and fury. Matthew Henry again says this, Abel was a righteous man. He's called this in scripture in Matthew chapter 23, righteous Abel. His heart was upright and his life was pious. He was one of those whom God counts, whose God's countenance beholds and whose prayer is therefore God's delight. God has respect to him as a holy man and therefore to his offering as a holy offering. The tree must be good else the fruit cannot be pleasing to the heart-searching God. So here we are. Cain, Abel, sacrifices, offering to God. One accepted, one not. One responds with anger and hatred. The other one is pleasing to God. God now further goes on to warn Cain of what sin is seeking to do in his life. Let's look at it here. Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted, God says? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. When you hear the word crouch, I think of a, of a lion, 
Discovery Channel, right? In the thicket of the savanna, hunting the whatever they hunt, the deer, the, the antelope. And he's crouched down, right? The lion's not standing up on two feet, all goofy, you know, yelling out for his food. He's crouched down, he's low, he's hidden, and he's getting closer. He's ready to devour, to destroy. And God says, that Cain is what sin is seeking to do to you. He's preparing him. He's warning him. The idea here is that sin's desire is for Cain or against Cain is the better way to say it. Sin is at war with God. Therefore, sin is not our friend. Sin is not your buddy. Was Satan in the garden looking out for Eve and her best interest to provide her eternal joy and happiness? No, he hates God. He sought to destroy her, and that's exactly what sin does. It seeks to war against the human race. It seeks to ravage and destroy. And God says to Cain, look, you're already on the wrong track, buddy. You're already unpleasing to me, and if you don't get a rein on this, you're going to be led to further destruction. Sin is not a good task master. Sin is not fun in the end. Sin does not give ongoing happiness. Saints, don't play around with sin. Some of you here this morning are playing around with sin. You're, you're like Cain. You're approaching sin like a willy-nilly offering. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Nobody knows about it. Just keep doing that in the hidden places. No. Sin will destroy you. It is the deadliest virus, right? We're experiencing a virus right now, and it's killing people. Sin is more deadly than COVID could ever be. Destroying and killing people. There's, it's infecting people all over. It's not maybe you get sin and infected by it. You're born exposed and infected by this disease, and it will destroy if you do not get a grip of sin. The Bible speaks so much about this that it tells us, right, to be guarding our hearts, to preserving our hearts, to keep our hearts set upon Christ and the things of the kingdom of God, the things that are good. Why? So that we don't gratify the desires of the sinful nature, right? For those of us who are in Christ, something happened. Our relationship to, our relationship to sin changed. It broke, but sin is still there. Every moment, every day, in little aspects, seeking to come into our life and to destroy, right? As Christians, we have power in Christ. We're free from sin. It's not our master anymore, but we still need to be on guard. We still need to be aware. We still need to be seeking things above, as Paul says in Colossians 3. How many of you, me included, are we seeking things above? Like, did you wake up this morning or yesterday and you were like, man, I just want to seek things above. I want to know Christ in greater glory. I want to be more caught up in the beauties of heaven. I want to be so enamored with the glory of the gospel. I want to invest my time, my money, everything into the things that are eternal because I, this life is temporary. Do we think like that or are we just going about life? Like, oh, I got homework, I got school, we're going to have people over Friday, we might do a vacation in two months, and you're just coasting. Like, is this what life is? It's temporary. It's temporary. God tells Cain that unless he puts sin to death, that is, unless, Cain, unless Cain rules over it, then it will rule over him. Folks, this is called being a slave. And the Bible talks about this. Romans chapter 6, listen to this. Paul writes to the Romans. He says, 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. This is talking about those who have come to faith in Christ. Peter says this, he says, by which God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of our sinful desire. And John here, reading the book of James, James says, let no one when he is tempted say what? Oh, well, God's tempting me. For God does not, God cannot be tempted with evil. It says, and he himself, God doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they're lured and enticed by their own wicked desire. And when that desire is conceived and gives birth to sin, consider the imagery there. It, when, when it's fully grown here, it says it brings forth death. It's the complete opposite. God gave conception and life for eternal life and goodness. Here, sin does the opposite. It births death. So here's the catch, and I don't want us to miss this. When we read this, when we look at this, right, this is why it's so important, Christian, to know your Bible, to read your Bible, to be familiar with the whole of your Bible, right? Because if you read this for what it is and you're not maybe seeing all of it, you might think here, well, how the heck are we going to get out of this condition? How are we going to gain victory over sin? How are we not going to be devoured by sin? And here's the catch. We can't. Cain cannot do what God warns him right to his face. He can't get out of it. He can't get out of the lion's grip. He will be devoured unless, unless something happens to him. This is what we call, or theologians call, total depravity. We are totally depraved, meaning we're totally lost. We're totally unable to get ourselves out of the condition that we're in. Right? You remember when Joseph's brothers, they sell him to Egypt? What do they do first? They take him out and throw him in a pit, a cistern. That's like a deep hole. You're not getting out of that. Right? We can't get out of our condition. Cain can't get out of what God is telling him he needs to get out of. And God's doing this so that he's pointing us to our rescue. This is what the whole Bible does. It continually points us to what we do need, what we do need. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. John Owen, he was a saint a few hundred years ago. He said this, he said, be killing sin or else sin will be killing you. Think about that, right? Are you proactively putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, by putting on the things of Christ? And we can only do this if we're new in Christ. God is pointing us here to our greatest need. We need to be born again. Cain needs newness of life. So let me just ask you guys this. Do you have dominion over sin in your life? Do you have power over sin? Is sin ruling over you or are you ruling over sin? And really what I'm saying is, are you in Christ? I think most of you are. Like, I would assume that we're, we're a church. We come together. I told my wife on the way down here, the church is the people of God. Like, this isn't a production, a show. I'm not, you know, we're family, right? We're here to encourage one another and point one another. And if some of you aren't in Christ, I want you to be in Christ. I want you to believe. Let's continue on. How much time do I have, Pastor Grady? Honestly. 
What's the answer to that? 10 minutes? Okay, let's cruise by this a little more. Look, verses 8 through 12. 8 through 12, what happens? Well, I think we already know. It's like a movie. We, you know, the, the, the cinematographer, the, the director has already shown us what's happening. We already know what's coming. Here's what it says. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against him and killed him. This is like so simply said. You almost just glaze over it. Just keep going. When it says here that he spoke to Cain, his brother, in the ESV, you might look at that. It's kind of weird. Like, what do you say? Like, hey, I'm going to kill you. Come on. No, it's deceptive. He, he basically goes, hey, bro, come on. Let's come with me out to the field. Let's head out here. I want to show you something. Whatever he said. He lured his brother out deceptively, which is what the law, which God says, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. He does the exact opposite. He lures him out, and then he just kills him. We see the first murder here. Cain kills his brother Abel. God knew Cain would kill Abel. And he told him to be watching out, right? Because sin was crouching at the door. Here's what's taking place. God's plan is actually unfolding in the midst of human rebellion. Right? We need to see that. Especially, not especially, this has been happening forever, but you look right now, right? Afghanistan, whatever you want to look at. Is God not sovereign over the wickedness of man? Is he not in control and going to bring everything under his dominion and justice, whether through Christ at the cross or through his wrath and fury, which we read about? Yes. The Bible is not plan B, folks. It's plan A. God's sovereign. He's in control. He knew Cain would kill Abel. He told him it was going to happen. And here it happens. Cain's heart was wicked. That's why he killed Abel. <laughs> James says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire something and you don't get it, so you kill. I love my kids, right? But, but children show us this so flagrantly in their young age. They don't get something and they are angry. And they'll do anything. They'll punch, kick, throw, Right? to get what they want, right? This is the normal condition of man. Who here has kids, whoever had to say to their kids, hey guys, I want you to sin towards one another today. I know you probably don't want to and you're not thinking about it, but I want you to be sinful. No, we do it by nature. Cain here is so angry, so jealous, his passion's within him. He doesn't get what he wants. God confronts him. His brother's righteous, so he kills him. We see this in Scripture. Saul and David. Saul, angry, furious. What does he want to do? Kill David. Unbelieving Jews with Stephen in the book of Acts. Stephen's righteous. He's preaching Christ. Jews hate him. They kill him. Right? And the biggest of all, the religious leaders in Jesus, which represent us. We're the religious leaders apart from Christ. We killed Jesus. And the Bible says that God used sinful men to have Jesus crucified so that we can have redemption in him. So what does Cain do here? He kills Abel, takes him out, probably thinking from the text that nah, nobody will find out about that. We'll just bury that over here. Let's keep reading. So he kills him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? It's just the classic, oh, why, why would you ask me? I'm, I don't know. God here, first and foremost, is not asking because he doesn't know. God knows. God knows. He knew before creation began. 
He knows every sin you've ever committed, will commit. He knows your thoughts. God knows. God here is not trying to ask Cain because he's not aware. Just like in the garden, he says to Adam and Eve, what, why are you naked? Well, God, uh, let, let's figure out something so we, you know, we'll lie to you. No, he, they're naked because they sinned. And God knew it and he exposed them. So here's Cain. He says, right, who am I, my brother's keeper? That's basically just trying to shift blame. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. God here puts the justice and judgment on Cain. You're guilty. Your brother's blood's crying out. I know what you did. What have you done? I told you sin was crouching at your door. You're just like your parents, right? Cain is exposed. He tries to cover up sin. This is a recapitulation of Adam and Eve in the garden. But guess what, folks? You can't cover up your sin. You can't lie to God. God knows all things. You can't hide your sin from him. And let me just pause and ask this morning. Maybe one of you are here. Maybe, maybe two. I don't know. Are you thinking you can hide your sin before God? Are you thinking in your life? Maybe you're not. You're probably not or you wouldn't be here murdering people. Right? But are you lying? Are you looking at porn? Are you living a life in rebellion towards God? Are you cheating? Are you committing adultery? Do you simply not desire the things of God and think that that's okay and God will overlook that one day? We cannot hide our sin from the Almighty. It has to come out in the open. It has to be confessed. It has to be turned from, and it has to be covered by Christ alone, which leads us towards the end here. Okay, look at verses 13 through 16. This is some merciful providence of God. This is bad news. This is not good for us. Like, as the human race, if we're looking at this story and letting, seeing it unfold, I mean, it's not good. Not a lot of hope. Not a lot of future insight and joy, right? We have a snippet, a promise from God. Besides that, Cain, he's wicked. Adam and Eve sin. Abel, the righteous one, he's gone. What are we left with here? Well, we see some merciful providence of God. Look what happens in verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I have been hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to Cain, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You might just read this. It's like, all right, we're just moving through the narrative. Let's press on. But what we see here is that God spares Cain. He spares him. He could have taken him out. He could have killed him right there like uh, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Done. He could have swallowed him up. He could have sent fiery snakes to bite him like the Jews in, in Numbers, but he doesn't. He spares him. He spares him because he has a plan. And God is using rebellious sinners in his plan to bring about his purposes. If Cain is not left, we, there's no Jesus, right? He's the lineage that eventually comes the Christ, comes from Adam. So God spares Cain. Notice, though, what Cain says. He says that he will be hidden from the face of God. This is true. 
Cain is hidden from the face of God. He recognizes and realizes he's been separated from God. When we start to get to a place of seeing our sin for what it is and that it's rebellion and separation from God, that's when we start to to drill down and see the, the reality of our need to be reconciled back to him. Matthew 5 says this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the just, or I'm sorry, on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Right? Look, we're all sinful. By God's grace, he saves sinners. Right? We might look at people like the Taliban and go, man, God's going to bring about his wrath whether they turn to Christ or, or, or for salvation or they don't. But look, God still has the sun coming up in, in Afghanistan. He still has rain coming on the wickedness of North Korea. He still allows America to exist. Wow. Right? God is kind because he does not desire that sinners perish. He doesn't desire that we would be destroyed. Ezekiel says this, I have, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. And not rather that they should turn from their evil and live. God is so kind. So merciful to us. To redeem us. And he's showing us a glimpse of his goodness. Providence is God working behind the scenes to, to carry out his purposes. We're real people. We have decisions. We have wills. We act. We're not robots. But God is behind it all. He's the sovereign orchestrator of all things. He's good and he's righteous and he's bringing everything to account. And here he shows us a glimpse of his merciful providence. Acts 17 says this, And he, God, made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This makes me think of Romans 10. It's a famous passage. If you believe, right, in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. But if you read that passage there, Paul alludes back to the nation of Israel when Israel was basically saying to Moses, like, you know, Moses says, here's some provision for you on this side of, of you know, the river or whatever. And they're like, ah, oh, that's too far. It's too much for us. And he's going, no, God's not far from you. He's provided a means, right? For any sinner to say, oh, well, you know, it's not fair. God hasn't given me the ability. No, God has provided in his son Jesus, hung and crucified for sinners. Genesis 3 15, God has redemptive intentions, which leads him to spare Cain and to keep up with the human race. There's one race, different skin colors, different hairstyles, different heights, whatever. One race. God is sparing the human race. Let me just conclude with this. The Bible's full of gospel nuggets, gospel imagery, Right? Pictures of Christ throughout the scriptures. We see him often. Let me just point this out, right? Cain's guilt is your guilt. Cain's guilt is our guilt. We are no different than Cain. And Abel's blood, it cries out to God just like it did to Cain for each one of us. 
it cries out for God's wrath. His good and perfect and just and right wrath to be poured out on each one of us. But the Bible says that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood speaks condemnation and justice, which we all deserve. Christ's blood calls out for redemption and reconciliation, salvation, which we don't deserve. This is the great exchange. This is the gospel. In Revelation 6, John sees this vision of all this judgment coming, and then it says that when Jesus comes back, people are going to be scrambling, they're going to be crying for boulders to crush them so that they don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb of God, Christ. And then it says, who can stand before God? Like, who could just step up? God's like, who can stand before me? Has anybody not sinned? And, yep, God, here I am. No, we all stand condemned. Here we all stand where we cannot stand in Cain. But Jesus is the greater Abel. Jesus is the better Abel. His blood speaks a better word. His blood saves. Cain committed the greatest treason. What is the great commandment? To love what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it to what? Love your brother. Love your neighbor. Love your sister as yourself. Cain did not do that. He killed his brother. Jesus steps in and doesn't kill, but lays his own life down to save sinners like us. Murderers of the heart liars, blasphemers, adulterers, wicked, the Bible says, but he's laid himself down. He's become the greater able so that we could have eternal life in him. Look, Jesus' blood satisfies the justice of God. We're either in Christ by faith, we believe, we look, we receive, we cling to Jesus and have eternal life and our sins are forgiven, the wrath of God is appeased, and if we don't, there's no other option but to face the wrath of God. So as I close, look, for us who are in Christ, this should bring us great comfort. There's so many nuggets in here I didn't even touch on. I want to encourage you to read your Bibles. All of us. Like, there's nothing better than this. Tuck away. Read the Word. Fill your heart with Christ. For those of you who might not be in Christ, kids, turn to Christ. Jesus is the only way. His arms are wide. He accepts and calls everybody to come to him. If you believe in him, you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word, your spirit. There's so much we don't know that we need to know. Even what we do know, it's not even a glimpse or a comparison to how wide and deep and great your love is in Christ, the imageries of the Bible, your perfect plan, all that you're doing. Help us to get outside of this temporary existence, not to not be fruitful in it, but to bear much fruit in it by being close to you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability to preach the word, to have this time together as God's people. There's brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Korea and China and all over the world who cannot do this, who are literally being killed, as the scripture says, like sheep to the slaughter. Let us not forget the privilege 
and to remember our brothers and sisters who are suffering. I do pray for them now. God, let us not act like this American life is the end. It's not. Lord, thank you for your grace, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.